This morning we are going to wrap up our series that we've been doing on the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And as I've said many times, we call them Minor Prophets, not because they're insignificant, not important, but because they are shorter than other prophets that wrote like Isaiah and Ezekiel. They were larger. They are the major prophets. These are minor. But they are, they are books that are God's word to us, and they are profitable to us. We're not as familiar, I don't think, as Christians with these books, but I hope this study has helped us uh, to glean some things about these books that have been helpful. I trust that it's been profitable to us. And uh, we recognize that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And this is no less true of the minor prophets. So I hope that uh, maybe it has opened up for you a desire to to read them and to get to know them better. Um, Originally, this was going to be just a flyover, one book a week, but we're on part 23. So I failed miserably at doing one book a week, Um, but today we're going to just wrap it up. And we want to look at the parts of chapters 3 and 4 of Malachi. And here we have the last words of the minor prophets in this prophet Malachi, and the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament. Now, I know there's, we, could, we could say John the Baptist really was the last of the prophets, but he's the last of the minor prophets and the last of the, in this Old Testament era. And we have here the last words of these prophets recorded for us by Malachi. It's about 400 years before the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember that the Bible is a narrative. The Bible is a story. It's not just a collection of different books that have no connection with one another. It's a story. It's a historical narrative. And the minor prophets are a part of this big story. But the story will continue as the Old Testament era comes to an end. And we will pick that up. Uh, it's picked up in the New Testament. But what's significant, I think, as we conclude the minor prophets, as we conclude this last prophet here in the Old Testament, is what his words are as he concludes this book. What we find is that he is going to speak about the Messiah who is to come. He is going to give hope and encourage faith to the people of God as they await the coming of the promised Messiah. They have been waiting for centuries, but he wants to encourage them and impress upon them again that he's coming and he will come. And so there is this sense at the end of the Old Testament of anticipation, of expectation, and awaiting the promised messianic hope. And this word, I think, is to give help to the people of God, to help their faith, to help their hope as they wait. And we need such ourselves, don't we? Because we find ourselves in the same position as them. We are waiting. We are hoping. We are anticipating this Christ who came once is coming again. We'll talk about that more as we conclude. And so we see, not surprisingly here, at the end of the book of Malachi, we find a cluster of a little word, B, 
behold. We find a lot of these in the Bible, the word behold. In the ESV, there are over a thousand times that this word is used. In the Old Testament, it is used many times, and in the Minor Prophets, we find it 60 times. The word behold is the idea of getting our attention about something. Behold, look at this, think about this, look at this amazing truth. And so it is calling attention to something that is astonishing, maybe unusual, or something that is vitally important. Look at this, behold this, this is a wonder. Or sometimes it's even used in a a sense of calling us to tremble. Behold something that is very solemn, something that's very sobering. But we find the word behold used again throughout all the Bible. The book of Genesis opens up with the word behold. God looked at everything that he had made in Genesis 131, and behold, it was very good. The world that was created by God was very good. It wasn't this big bang and chaos and then evolution. No, everything that God created at the beginning was very good. Look at this created universe that he made, this paradise that he made. We haven't evolved. We have devolved. And uh, so, behold, opens up in Genesis 1. But when we get to the end of the Old Testament, we find behold again. And here we find the prophet calling the people of God to behold several things. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. And at the end of the, uh, the verse, behold, he is coming, says the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 1, for behold, the day is coming. There is a day that is coming. Behold this. Think about this. And then again in verse 5, we see there, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes. So it grips our attention here. Listen, think about these things. Behold this. Let this grip your hearts as the people of God. Behold what is going to happen. And he's going to speak about here about significant appearances or personalities that are going to come. And he's going to speak about significant days that are yet ahead future in redemptive history. So first of all, we see some significant appearances. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. This is the Lord speaking. I'm going to send my messenger. Well, who is this messenger? Well, As we go on in the Bible, we realize this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the way preparer. He's referred to in chapter 4, verse 5, that we just read. He's going to come in the spirit of the well-known, well-respected, revered Elijah. He will be an Elijah-like prophet, and he will be the preparer. When a king would come to a city, they would send... preparers for the king's entrance and they would make way they would clear the streets they would make sure there was a royal reception Uh, we see that in cincinnati whenever a president 
comes to visit, what do they do but shut down I-75 and 275, and it frustrates all of us. But they're preparing for a royal visit. This is this man that is going to come. He is the messenger, my messenger, who's going to prepare the way. And if the way preparer comes, the king's not far behind. So there is coming this great personality, Elijah-like, and he will be the one who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And again, the New Testament reveals this to be none other than John the Baptist. Then we see in verse 1 that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord is going to come. He is going to come to his temple. And then the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord is coming to his temple. And this messenger of the covenant, and most believe this is a reference to the Messiah, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one. He is going to come to the temple. That's why the glory of this second temple is greater than the glory of the first temple. It is Christ, the Son of God, who himself will come to this temple. And so here is John the Baptist that is coming. The Lord himself is going to come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings or in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Verse 3, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So here is another title that is used in reference to Christ. He is the son of righteousness, and he's coming with healing upon his wings. So this is another significant passage. There are these appearances of these personalities, these appearances of these people that will come. These are significant events, these appearances. But secondly, there are significant days. In chapter 3, verse 2, Who can endure the day of his coming? When the Lord comes, when the Messiah comes, who can endure the day of his coming? So there's a day that is coming. It's a significant day. There's the day of the coming of John the Baptist. There's the coming of the the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And there will be this day. It is a solemn day. Verse 5. Chapter 3, then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So this is a day that is coming. Now, as we think about this day, we see here as we look at these last two chapters that there are two themes that are woven into this day and the coming of these person, personalities. The first is a day, it is a day of salvation. It is a day of salvation. And it picks this up in chapter 3 of this one who is coming, who can endure, verse 2, is coming, and who can stand when he appears. Notice what it says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like 
fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So two images are given here. One is a refiner's fire. This is one who purifies gold or silver. And what do they do to remove the dross and to allow there, there to be the pure gold and silver, where they put it in a hot furnace and they burn away the dross. God says, this is what I'm going to do when I send my son. He is going to come and he's going to bring about purification, purification to make clean, to remove dross, to remove sin. And then a second image is the launderer's soap or the fuller's soap. This is referring to cleansing, what a launderer would do. He would use a soap to make clean, to remove stains, to remove dirt. We all love Procter & Gamble. Uh, That helps us to do that with our laundry, to remove the stains. And this imagery is used of the launderer having removing stains. And we see the Levites are mentioned here. They were the ones who served in the temple. They were the ones who represented the people before God. They were there. But in the day of Malachi, these men are ungodly. They are offering up sacrifices that are polluted, not what God required. They themselves are polluted. But they are the representatives who are in the presence of God. And he says that, He is going to purify the Levites. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And therefore, they will be able to bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. There is the need for purification. Do you remember Zechariah 3, I think it was, or Zechariah 5 maybe, where the picture of the high priest, he was dressed, Joshua, in filthy garments, He was dressed in filthy garments as a representative of the people. He represented them, but he himself was filthy, and the people were filthy with sin, in need of new garments, clean garments. And God gave to him new garments, took off the old ones. And this is a a picture of what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to come and refine and remove dross, and he is going to bring about cleansing. We also saw in Zechariah, On that day, there will be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This fountain will be opened up and it will be for cleansing. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we need. There is one who is coming and he will be like the fuller's soap. He will bring cleansing. He is the one who removes dross. What we find, I think, is interesting in the New Testament. We find this very imagery used of the people of God. We are priests, aren't we? We have been made priests by God if we are in Jesus Christ. Peter writes, and he says in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Think about that. We no longer have a priest that we go through like the Old Testament saints did. We don't have a priest that we have to go to. 
to address God, to serve God. We learn that all of us, if we are a Christian, we are priests. We minister and we serve God. And there is one great high priest. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Peter tells us that we are living stones being built up in this spiritual house where we, as priests, offer up our offerings, our praise, our worship, our service. Think about that. The priesthood of all believers. This is what Christ has made us to be. But also in Christ, we have been purified. Paul says to Titus in Titus 2.14 that Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, purify for himself his own special people, language right out of the Old Testament used of us, purify for himself his own special people that are zealous for good works. This is what Christ has done for us. Purified us, made us to be priests that we might serve him. So this is the refiner's fire, the launderer's soap. This is referring to a day of salvation, but we see this term also used or a different term used in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Again, this is a title that is attributed to Christ. Like the sun, S-U-N, the sun that arises and gives life to the world, that brings light and brings warmth, sustains life. This one that is to come, he is the son of righteousness. And he comes with healing in his rays, healing in his wings. Just as the sun spreads its light upon the world and brings blessing, this one who comes, He comes in righteousness. He is the one that brings righteousness that we don't have. And he is the one that brings healing in his wings. When we think about the ministry of Christ and we read in the Gospels, over and over again, he's healing people. He has compassion upon the sick and he's healing them. The blind, the lame, the deaf, he even raises the dead. He he cast out demons. But there is another kind of healing that I think is being portrayed here in this work of Christ, and it's spiritual healing. All of those miracles that Jesus did brought physical relief, but it all, I think, was pointing to the greater relief that Christ brings, and it is spiritual relief from the effects of sin. It is Christ who opens spiritually blind eyes, It is Christ who opens ears to hear and to understand spiritual realities. It is Christ who brings about life. It is Christ who forgives sin. And it is Christ who frees from the bondage of sin. And he does both of these things. One day he's going to bring about physical healing completely. But even now, we know spiritually what it is to be forgiven of sin, to be cleansed, and this by the work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the response. He says, verse 2, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. There's a different translation in the New, Mer- or the New King James, uh, the wed- well-fed calves. But I think the verb here has this idea of, of calves that have been kept in and now they are let out and they are leaping in the field. Maybe you've seen that. Most of us haven't grown up on a farm. But you've seen those calves when they've been released out into the field and they're just jumping and bouncing all over the place. And it's a picture of the joy that this one brings and the freedom that he brings to his people. And it brings great joy, great blessing to them, and it is experienced by them. And so we see that this is a day of salvation when this one will come. But we also see intertwined here that it will be a day of judgment. He comes to bring salvation, but this one also is the judge of all the earth. And God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the one whom he has raised from the dead, Paul says. And so here is a warning about that day as well. It will be a day of judgment. The Lord will draw near in judgment. Now, the complaint that was being made back in chapter 2 and verse 17 by some of the people of Israel who were really not following the Lord, they were rebelling against him, saying harsh words against him. They were saying, you know, here we are trying to serve you, but we have not received your blessing. We have not received your favor. And it seems like the wicked are prospering. They're living ungodly lives. We're going to the temple. We're doing this. We're doing that, but we're not being blessed. And the wicked are just defied. They're living in sin and corruption. And You do nothing. And it says, where is the God of justice? This is what some of them were saying. Where is the God of justice? Well, he responds in chapter 3, Behold, I'm sending my messenger. I'm sending the Messiah. He's going to come, and he is going to bring salvation, but he is also going to come as judge. Look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I'm not indifferent to sin, God says. Though God's judgment is delayed does not mean he's indifferent. It will come. God will judge. And so we have these uh, statements here. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming. Notice the strong language that is used here. The day is coming. And it is burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God is going to send his son. He will come and he will bring about judgment on the wicked, the unbelieving, the profane. And again, this is very strong language. Hebrews says this, that 
It is a terrifying thing. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But one day, things are going to be set in order. Look back at chapter 3, verse 18. Having spoken about those who had a heart for the Lord, who feared the Lord, who were speaking to one another about the things of God and encouraging them to follow on, the Lord says, they'll be mine, they're my treasured possession. Here's a remnant that God has spared. But then verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. There's coming a day when there's going to be a great separation, when this, this distinction will be made clear who belongs to the Lord and who comes under his wrath and his judgment. Jesus speaks about this, doesn't he? There's coming a day, he says, when the Son of Man is going to come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, and he's going to separate the sheep and the goat. And he's going to say in that day, they will, the, the ones that are the goats that are on his left hand, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. He's going to separate the chaff from the grain. And that day of judgment is coming. And the warnings are being sounded here by Malachi as well as in the New Testament. No one will cheat sin. God will judge. And so these are sobering warnings that are given. Now, as we come to the end of the book of Malachi, and there's this foretelling of the one who is to come, and he is going to come, and he will, he will bring forth the gospel. And so the New Testament is going to be, the com- coming of Christ is going to be 400 years later. There's another four um, hundred years of waiting. And so he's encouraging them to wait. But what do we find as the New Testament opens up? We find behold again, that word used numerous times. An angel appears to Joseph, behold, the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take your wife, Mary, uh, and marry your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, as is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face. He's here. The day has come. Behold, the day is here. That's how the New Testament opens up. The Messiah is here. What we have been waiting for, what we have been longing for, and we find a remnant of people that are there waiting for the Messiah. There's Simeon, there's Anna, and there are these people. He's here, the promised Messiah. But we know that having come once, he said he's going to come again. And all these things that Malachi has been speaking about are not going to all happen at one time. Many were expecting that, that he would come and he would save his people and he would judge the enemies. But that has been postponed, and we're living in this period now of over 2,000 years, but he's coming again. And so the way the book of Revelation ends is with some more beholds. 
Behold, he's going to come. He's going to come. And what a day that will be. Revelation 21. There's this new heaven that is coming down out of heaven, this new Jerusalem. And it says God will be among his people. They will be his people and he will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more death. And then we have these words. Then he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I love that verse. Behold, I make all things new. We are awaiting that day. So, both the Old Testament, the New Testament begin with the words behold and they end with the words behold. Behold, I am coming, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we close this morning, just some, just three important takeaways as we think of the minor prophets. The first is this, as we look at it from the New Testament looking back. The first is this, solely trust Christ. Trust Christ alone. What we read in Romans 3, Paul says that by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here is, here is the old covenant people under the law of Moses, and it doesn't show them that they are righteous. What we see through the Old Testament is it exposes them that they are not righteous in themselves. And Paul tells us in Galatians that, that all of that was a tutor to lead us to who? To Christ. It's a a tutor to lead us to Christ. Brothers and sisters, or or if you're here and you're trusting in anything that you do, you will never see the face of God. The Old Testament teaches us, that the people of Israel teach us, that we don't have a leg to stand on. We have no righteousness in ourself. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if you think that by what you do and trying to keep the law of God, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, that You'll be right with God. You're wrong. By the law comes the knowledge, not that I'm righteous, but that I am unrighteous. I am ungodly. I need a Savior. And he is the one that is promised. He is the great Savior of sinners. And the call of the Old Testament, the call of the New Testament is look to Christ and trust in him alone. A second takeaway that we have is we are called, if we are a follower of Christ, we are called to walk humbly with Christ, to walk humbly with him. We see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, as we think about this remnant of people, we see their heart, those who feared the Lord, and they spoke with one another. They spoke and they encouraged one another. Keep on in following the Lord. Be faithful to him when so many were not. And we've learned through the book of the Minor Prophets, things like this, Hosea 6.6. 6. What, what is God looking for in the hearts of his people? I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what we learn from the Old Testament minor prophets. 
love God, trust God, be devoted to him, follow hard after him. Have a heart that is committed to him. And then lastly, patiently wait for Christ. Patiently wait for Christ. I don't know about you, but I have trouble waiting. My wife is always frustrated when I'm trying to take that shortcut to get where we're going. Usually doesn't turn out to be a shortcut. I want to get there quicker. I don't like to wait. We don't like to wait four minutes. Remember first time you used the microwave, you were just amazed. That short a period of time and you have a cup of hot tea or whatever. And now four minutes is like, come on, you know. We have a, I have a hard time waiting. But as believers, we are called to wait, to wait in patience, with patience. We have a glorious hope. Christ is coming again. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. As you live in this fallen world, Wait, wait in hope and anticipation of the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you live in a world where we see more and more injustice and we see things that just we can't believe that are going on in our world, in our country, in our city, and people seem to be getting by with sin, remember, Christ will come. He's going to settle all accounts. He is the judge of all the earth. And we can wait upon him. So we are called to wait patiently, wait in faith, wait in hope, and follow after Christ. May God, by his grace, may he enable us to be such people as this, knowing that as the word of God tells us, that everyone who trusts in him, they will never be put to shame. They will never be disappointed. So keep your eyes fixed upon As we close this morning, I invite you to take your hymn book and turn to number 200.